Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Let us uh, turn to our Parsha this morning. We're in Parsha by Yeshev this morning. The rest of the book of Genesis is the story of Yosef. So what's a little difficult about these Shabbatot is that we are each time only reading a quarter of the story. So it's a little odd to kind of just read a chunk and that's that's your Parsha like for the week. I was very tempted to do the story of Judah and Tamar this morning because it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um but it's Hanukkah. So we're going to do a little, little, a little learning together and then, uh, tie it into our festival of light. All right. So let us look together at, uh, Parsha. We're looking at Parsha by Yeshev and that is Genesis 37. We've been dealing with Yaakov, right? We've been dealing with, um, his story and, uh, he comes back, um, to his, native land and uh he settles he and Esau figure things out and so um we're just coming to the end of Yaakov's story um and we're introducing the story of Yosef and so we get this like tagline right before um dealing with the story of Yosef of Yosef which the rabbis go to town on and there's lots of midrashim um, a lot of ink spilled over this one line of Torah. So Yaakov settles um, in the place of his ancestors, uh, and that is in Eretz Kna'an, in the land of Canaan. Okay. Ela Toldot Yaakov. So now we're going to get Toldot. Whenever we get Toldot, we're, no, we're talking about generations. We're talking about, right, the next next generations. So who who are the generations of Yaakov? Boom, it ends this weird kind of cutoff, and then we jump into Yosef being 17 years old. So this kind of odd, like, you know, we don't really get a description of all of the sons and all of that stuff that these are the general, we just get, boom, right into Yosef. So what are we told about Yosef? Um, the the translation here wants to say, it's not a cutoff, it's actually saying, um you know, Yosef is the point of Yaakov. Like that, that it's Yosef who is the the real offspring of Yaakov because it is, of course, his favorite, right? So he has how many other sons? Eleven, Eleven other sons and two daughters and a daughter, Dina, right? Uh, and so uh, red tent fame. Of red tent fame, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. All right. So yes, because uh because Anita Diamant wants to re rewrite the story of Dina because all we have from Torah is the tragic events, right, that that leave her ruined. That that's all we that's all we have about Dina. So that the red tent really is her midrashic response to the incredibly tragic story of Dina that we have from Torah. Alright. So let's 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 read a bit about what's going on with Yosef. Yosef ben Shebas Reshana, right? So he's 17 years old. And he is a shepherd with his brothers, um, tending the flocks. Um, and he is uh, a na'ar. He's a young guy, right? A teenager, essentially. Um, and he's with the sons of Bilha and Zilpah, his father's wives. So he is tending sheep with the handmaids, right? So not the sons of Rachel and Leah, but the sons of the handmaids. And what does he do? He brings a report, ra'ah, bad, to his father about them. So he's paddling on his half-brothers. Okay, Who's his only full brother? Benjamin, exactly, right? So Rachel has two children. She dies giving birth to Benjamin. And so um, these are his half-brothers. Now Yisrael, so Yaakov for the rest of his life, after he wrestles with the angel and he's called Yisrael, he's called by Torah both after that incident. He's called Yisrael and Yaakov. So the rabbis like to look at when is he called one and when is he called the other. Here he's called Yisrael. Ahavet Yosef Mikol Banav. He loves Yosef more than all of his other sons. 
Um, and Tara tells us here it's because Yosef is the son of his old age. Um, but why do we really think he loves him best? Because of Rachel, right? Because he loves Rachel the most. And this is Rachel's son, her firstborn son. Um, and so what, what we know is that he, he favors him, whether it's because it's the child of his old age or it's the, the child of the oldest of Rachel, whatever. I mean, you got to imagine he's got a bit, little bit of mixed feelings about Benjamin, right? I mean, that's, you know, he was happy with Rachel and Yosef. It was Rachel who wanted a second child. It's Rachel, right, who kept saying, you know, I want another child. I want another child. And Yosef says to her, like, what, am I not enough for you? <laughs> like, right? And sure enough, she dies having that second child. So, um, yeah. so for that reason, also, I have, I imagine his feelings for Yosef are less complicated, right? Um, than his feelings for, uh, Benjamin. So in any case, he makes for Yosef, um, ktonet pasim. So he makes a, a garment for Yosef, um, that is special. It somehow is a mark of, of, of his special favor with his father that he gets to wear this ketonet. He gets to wear this, uh, outer, it's an outer garment. So, so some kind of ornamented, expensive, very special, um, outer garment. Um, and when his brothers saw that it was Yosef that their father loved above all the brothers, what is the natural reaction to that? They hate him, right? They, they couldn't even, they couldn't even greet him. Like they couldn't even say hi, right? Like you, you ask after someone's shalom. That's how you still in Hebrew today. If you want to ask how someone is, Yam, if I want to ask you how you are, what do I say? Maslam ha. What's up with your shalom? That is still how you greet people in Hebrew. You say shalom, obviously, but then you say maslam ha. How is your shalom? That's how you ask, how are you? Right? So, so that is what it's saying here. They can't even, they, they can't even exchange the regular greetings with him. They, they, they can't stand him. What is the usual answer to that? How is your shalom? Let's say that. Right? Kaha, kaha. How do you, yeah, if I say to you today, mashlam cha, what do you say? Ah, so he's saying it's great. Um, so you, you answer either politely, like, like everything's fine, or you answer with a beautiful answer, you know, chayim yafim, life is beautiful. Um, or, or or you say it sucks. There's a similar thing in French. They say comment ça va, which means how how's how's it going? Right. And there's a similar thing in Russian, comme you love. Right. So we all have you know, we all have these ways of, of of it's polite, right? These these are and it and it's and it's not like you're really asking, like, tell me how you are. Right? Mashlam Kha is just like Mashlamech is just like, how are you? It's just Pleasantries. They can't even do the basics. Like the basic niceness. They, they can't. They can't stand it. And he's tattling on them, right? So it's not just that he's the favorite, but that he's also a brat, right? And, and, and now he's got this special coat. Okay. So it's, so it's just getting worse and worse, right? And so now Joseph, who is not so bright, <laughs> so he dreams a dream. Fine. You have a dream. That's fine. Right? Um, and, and he told the dream to his brothers. And from then on, they hated him even more. Right? They, why? Because he's like, hey, listen to this dream I had. Right? Oh my gosh. Like we were binding sheaves in the field and like my sheaf was huge and upright and y'all's sheaves were circling around and bowing down to mine. <laughs> All right. Not the brightest bulb on the tree. Right? And his brother said to him, would you be king over us? Would you really rule, rule over us? And from then on, they hated him still more for his dreams and for his words. 
But he had another dream. And he told it to them, (laughs) saying, right, the sun and the moon and the stars were all bowing down to me. And when he recounted it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've dreamt? Shall we come? Yes, come I, your mother and your brothers to bow down to you to the ground. His brothers envied him while his father kept the matter in mind. Shamar Tadavar is what it says in Hebrew. He, he took note, right? He, he didn't forget what's, what's happening. Um, but so the father is keeping all of this in mind, but then what does he do? Nobody's really bright in this story. Can I just tell you? <laughs> so, so the brothers go to tend the sheep in Shechem and Yisrael says to Yosef, aren't your brothers tending sheep in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. I'm going to send you to your brothers. And what does Joseph answer? What are you supposed to answer when somebody is about authority is going to tell you what to do? What's the right answer? Hineini. Okay. All right. So Yaakov knows the brothers hate him. They're far away from home. And he decides to send Yosef to the brothers. Okay. So, and he said to him, look into the well-being of your brothers and into the well-being of the sheep and bring me back word. So he sent him out from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. All right. Vayim ish. So now we have an ish. What, where was the last time we had an ish? Last week. Yeah. Last week. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, right. The last time we had an ish was last week. <laughs> and whenever we just get an ish, <laughs> we learned last week. Yeah. Hmm? Maybe. No. Just sum things up, right? When you've got just an ish out of nowhere, something's going on. Right. Um, Because that's what we're told last week, that that he wrestles with an ish. And then it turns out that he says, I've seen the face of God. Right. Very complicated. All right. So now we just have an ish that finds him. Okay, As he's roaming in the field, the rabbis, of course, say he's davening. Right. God forbid roaming. Why would he just be roaming? That makes no sense. Right. Of course, he's out there meditating in the field. He's talking to God. In the field, he's praying. Okay. This is the rabbis, but Torah just says he's, he's out in the field. Maybe he's lost, right? He's 17 years old. He's got to go find his brothers. He's not sure exactly what's going on. Where are they? He's got to go find them. And the ish says to him, Matavakish, what, what, what are you, what are you after? Like, what are you looking for? And he said, Anochi he said, et my brothers is what I'm looking for. Um, can, can you tell me where they are? And the Ish says, well, they've moved on from here. I heard them say, let us go to Dotan, towards Dotan. So Yosef went after his brothers and came upon them in Dotan. Peter Pitzela has a whole thing uh, in his book, Our Father's Wells, about had this ish not been there, what would have happened? The only reason he finds his brothers is because there's an ish standing there who said, I heard them say, let's go to Dotan. How does this guy know who the brothers are? I mean, are they all wearing jerseys that say, you know, Yaakov and sons? Like, how does he know those guys that said, let's go to Dotan are Joseph's brothers? He doesn't describe them. He doesn't say how many there are. Like this Ish just happens to know that those are his brothers. And the Ish just happened to hear them say, let's go towards Dotan. That's part of myth. So, well, that's part of Ish, right? Yeah. Like that is part of what Torah does with Ish. <laughs> so of course the rabbis have, you know, lots to say about who this Ish is, but what we know is, and Peter Pitzler talks about it, for each of us, there's been an Ish. 
for each of us, there has been someone that had they not said what they said to us, we would not be sitting in this room, the people we are right now. We might not have a senator sitting in the room. It's not positive or negative. It's just a turning point. It's a turning point, right? We wouldn't have two violin makers sitting here. If somebody didn't say something. But each isn't necessarily negative. No, no. But what I'm saying is what we know from Torah, having studied last week, what we know is when you just got an issue, just happens to be that that it's it's a significance that it's we, we just run by it like, oh, there's a guy and he says this stuff and we could just read right over it. But I don't want us to, because like Peter Pizzola says, for each of us, there's been somebody of significance that they don't even have any idea necessarily. Right. When Rabbi. Meltzer of blessed memory kept me after sixth grade after school to say, I see how the boys treat you. I see how the girls treat you. It's not your fault. They're jealous. They, they, they're horrible to you. It's not you. I don't think I'd be who I am today without that conversation with Rabbi Meltzer. And I wrote about that conversation in my essay to get into rabbinical school that I hoped someday to be Rabbi Bernstein who would keep a kid after class to say, I see what's happening. It's not you or whatever, you know, like it, you're, you're okay. Right. And so this Ish had this Ish not been here. Yosef would not have become the vizier of Egypt. Isn't there a sense here that this is God manipulating kind of the story? Cause the last Ish weren't sure if that was um, (laughs) a messenger from God and that this is part of, Behind this, behind the scenes. Well, particularly because God doesn't appear in the right. story yeah. of Yosef. We were told that God is with him in the prison. But that seems to be an awareness of Yosef's. That Yosef feels like God's with him. But like, right, we, otherwise God is absent. So for the rabbis, uh, of course it has to be that this is all providential. Right. This is all meant to be. And of course, God is behind. I call them angels in my life. I have a list of them. People who have turned, made a path turn in a different way. Mm-hmm. Another thing interesting about each, each being where each room had three letters, three letters, Aleph, Yud, and Shin. If you take from that root, it can be Yesh, which is Ab. And if you take the Aleph and the Shin, it will be fire. And then on the left, it's Yud. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. There is a teaching that says Ish and Isha, right? So Ish is person, man. Isha is woman or wife, right? So that if you take the Yud and the He out, the name of God, if you don't have God between you, what's left? Ish, fire. It just blows up, right? So that we have to, in our relationships, we have to keep God and godliness, I would say, uh, an awareness of that in our relationships or else all we have left is ish, is fire. So beautiful. Give, uh, Joseph a little credit that he looked up and saw. Ah, so, so Dana wants to give you safe credit that he, <laughs> that he's active. Well, I'm sure if we're all made in the image of God, you know, do we take the opportunity to look up and listen and see? Mm-hmm. Maybe he, he, cause he was very observant. He was spying on everybody. <laughs> although, although Torah here says, Vayim tsa'ehu ish, the ish found him. Oh. It doesn't say, yeah. often we get vayar, like he lifts his eyes and he sees. We don't get that here. We, here we get, it seems really passive on the part of Yosef. It seems the guy, the ish, whatever that is, found him and asks him, what are you looking for? Right. And what, what are you searching for? Right. What do you, what do you want? Right. And again, how many times has someone asked us that in a way that changed our are lives? Are these all his brothers he's looking for or just his half brothers? We're not told. Um, but they're all his half brothers except Binyamin. Right. Only Binyamin is his full brother. The rest of them are all half brothers. All right. So now we're, now we switch perspective and we get the perspective of the brothers. They see him from afar, right? Uviterim yikravalehem, and before he even gets near them, they start plotting. 
Lahamito to kill him. It's a bit harsh. Now, Bayomru Ish El Achiv. And now each Ish turns to the other and says, here comes, here comes the, uh, the big shot. Here comes the macher. Here comes the big dreaming macher, right? The, the master of dreams, right? So obviously quite sarcastic. Um, the atta. So this is the atta with an ayin, which means, so now, lechu, let's go and let's kill him and throw him into one of these borot, one of these pits. And we'll say that a chayabra'a, uh, an evil beast ate him. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams, right? Because it's not just that he dreams. What does he dream? Yeah. That they're going to worship him. And he's told them this. Idiot, right? That he is. 17-year-old idiots. You know them. We've been them, right? Right? He's just an idiot. Like, and so he's telling them, right, this. So, so these are the dreams they're talking about. If he's dead at the bottom of a pit, uh, then we'll see if we're going to bow down and worship his sheaf. I'm wondering about this ish in uh, 15. Uh-huh. And this ish. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just say the brothers? Exactly. Because I think, yeah, I think Torah, personally, whenever we get ish, we get something about destiny. And so I think in this case, I mean, this is just me, but. I, I, cause I agree with you. Why didn't it just say the brothers turn to each other? Why does it say ish elechav? Because I think this is also about his destiny. Had they not planned to kill him, right? Yeah, his destiny story would, this, it wouldn't be the story, right? This is 100% about his destiny. Um, and so we, so, so we have the term ish. Wait, just one second. Go one step further. That basically means God's orchestrating the story. Well, you agree with Bert. Yes. Okay. So you agree, Bert, that this is about God manipulating all of this. We're not told that, obviously. But Joseph, at the end of his story, says it. That it's to save y'all's lives that God has put me in this position of being vizier of Egypt. That all of this was God putting Joseph where he needed to be to save his family's life. Okay. But Torah just says, right? They're talking to each other and they decide to do this and they decide to throw him into the pit. And then we'll see what becomes of his stupid dreams. And Ruvain hears this. And this is the disjunctive of, but Ruvain hears it. So, but, so we're, we're getting Ruvain apart from everybody else. And it's like, this is not a good idea, <laughs> right? He's trying to save Yosef, Miyadam, from their hands. Aviva Zornberg points out their hands. Um, she focuses on how Torah uses um, the imagery of their hands, not to take his life. And Ruvain says to them, don't shed blood, meaning with their hands, right? Um, don't shed blood, throw him into the pit, but don't what? Don't lay your hands on him in order to save him from their hands. Over and over and over this imagery of the hands. For her, it is a visceral it's a visceral hate that they have for him. They want to tear him apart. So, um, so he, he's trying, so Ruben's trying to not have them do that and wants to return him to his father. So Yosef, Ruben's trying to get them to throw him in the pit. Presumably Ruben's going to go rescue him once the brothers are distracted. Right, because it says he wants to save him from their hands and return him to his father. Not just let's not shed his blood; he'll just die in a pit. He wants to return him to his father. So Reuven is going to go get him when the brothers have moved on. Right when they cool off. Right. So it was when Yosef. Now, now Yosef is arriving. What do they do? They they strip him of his kuchonet. Right, is um, 
they strip him of it and they take him and they put him in the boar rake. So the the pit is rake, is empty. There's no water in it. We cannot have Department of Redundancy Department in Torah. Why say Chazal, the rabbis say, why does it say it's rake? It's empty. There's no water in it. It's enough to say it's empty. Or it's enough to say, but there wasn't any water in it. Why would it say it's rake and it has no water in it? There has to be a reason. And we're going to see. <laughs> so they throw him into this pit that's empty and has no water in it. And they sat down to have a sandwich. <laughs> they sit down to have lunch. And what happens? They lift up their eyes and they see. So here they are active, right? Participants in whatever is going on. They lift up their eyes. What do they see? Hine. Yo, behold, there is a bunch of Ishmaelites coming from Gilad, right? And they have camels uh, carrying all this stuff that they're going down to Egypt. So this is a caravan that's going down of Ishmaelites going down to Egypt. This is a trade route, right? So remember Israel's between Mesopotamia and thank you, <laughs> Mesopotamia and Egypt. So it's always, it's a trade route. So it's always getting overrun. So it's good for business, but it, all, it also means it's always getting schmeitzed right by the superpowers in the region. But right now it, it's just a, a, a caravan now, Yehuda says to his brothers, what gain is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. But let us what? Not put our what? Hands. They learn fast. On him. For he is our brother. Bisarenu. He's our meat. He's our flesh. And the brothers listened to him. Okay. So, meanwhile... Some Midianite guys, merchants were passing by. Say again. The only two brothers that are mentioned are the ones that are trying to calm everybody down. Yes. Not, yes. The perpetrators aren't mentioned. But Correct. Surely, I bet there are a few that were. Anyway, it's interesting to be on here. So, so Ben, what does that mean for you? Does it does it give you kind of a sense of like it's a mob, or like what? Usually, a mob is end on. Usually. I would think that somebody was was really egging it on the mouth. Agitating. That's usually the case. You know, it's nice that maybe they they don't they don't kind of permanently condemn. Now, all these guys are going to become tribes. You know, tribes, right? So, so maybe, maybe that's part of the reason you, you don't want to you know you don't want someone to be the black sheep, you know, Judas, <laughs> as it were. Right. As it were. Um, but so interesting to your tribe theory. Who are the two that? Support not killing him. Aha. Uh-huh. So this tells us something about the relationship between Ephraim and Manasseh, those tribes, and the tribes of Reuben and Yehuda. Right? So always, you have to remember, the tribes retroject this. Yeah. The tribes are the one telling these stories. It's not that these are the brothers and they become tribes. The tribes write these stories about their ancestors who were brothers. Right, because it's a loose confederation that then becomes a nation. So it tells us something that it's Ruvain and Yehuda who stick up for Yosef. Tells us because we don't have a tribe of Yosef, we have Ephraim and Manasseh as the tribes. So his sons. So this tells us something that it's Ruvain and Yehuda who stick up for him. Tells us relationship between Ruvain and Yehuda, Ephraim and Manasseh. That is a long ago. We don't anymore. I don't know Israel history enough to know what that is. But that's clearly something that's going on here. And what and the tribe of Yehuda, what's going to be in the tribe of Yehuda? What's going to be there? Jerusalem? The temple. Huh? It's in Judah, right? So that's where the that's where the temple's gonna be. It's in Judah. It's not an accident, it's Judah who speaks up. When you say the word Ishmaelite, 
That is very funny. Only in English. Only in English. That's what my question was. Yeah, yeah. No, because it's Yishma with an ayin, right? Yishma El. It's about God hearing, right? That name is about yeah. So, but it, but lovely in English, yeah. Ishmaelite, that's very funny. And I'll okay. ask you a question. Do you refer to he was not the brightest bulb of the tree? That might be an original problem. What do you suppose the tree was? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that has bulbs on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So meanwhile, some Midianite guys are passing by. They haul up Yosef from the pit. They sold Yosef to the Ishmaelites. For 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Yosef to Egypt. Now, Ruvain, how do the brothers not see all this? Yeah. But Ruvain returns to the pit, presumably to go get Joseph. And what happens? Behine, behold, and Yosef, Babor. There ain't no Joseph in the pit. And he tears his clothing. And he returns to his brothers and he says, The kid isn't. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. And I, where, where will I go? It's incredibly unclear what the heck this means. Um, so of course there's gotta be a lot of, it's an engraved invitation for Midrash. Um, but but what he realizes is Hayelet Enenu. The kid is gone. The boy is Enenu. He's gone. He, he he isn't. And literally the Hebrew is he isn't. Zornberg really picks up on this. That that is in fact what has happened. Yosef Enenu. The Joseph we know is gone. The Joseph that existed until this incident is gone. Forever. He suffers a trauma that he is unable, she claims, to integrate. That he is unable to really integrate this experience of his brothers laying their hands on him, spreading his coat and throwing him into a a hole, right, that he can't get out of. And then he's hauled out of there by folks who sell him. You can imagine, you know, he's now bound and walking behind a camel. You've seen movies, right? You know, where they tie him to a rope and they're like walking behind the horse, right? You know, the, the Joseph we've known, and then he's, he's gone. He does not exist anymore and won't again. Um, unless you want to talk about the full circle at the end, you know, when, when Yaakov comes because he, he's, he's gone from Yaakov. For 22 years, starting here, it's 22 years until he sees Yaakov. What do we always talk about about this story? That once he gets to Egypt, does he send a telegram? <laughs> Yaakov Gerenstein in, in Canaan, I'm fine. Why doesn't he tell his father he's alive? And Zornberg says, because he cannot integrate what has happened. He, 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 and then um, he he isn't. He, there's a part of Yosef that is gone, that is inaccessible even to himself as a result of what has happened here and the trauma of this. Um, and I'll read you just a paragraph of hers. We're going to stop reading Torah here. Um, so what do they do? They take his tunic, right? They slaughter a goat and they dip the tunic in blood and they bring it to Yaakov, and they say, Hakerna, recognize, please, Haktonet, the tunic, Bincha, of your son, he, is it Imlo or not? So, Hakerna, recognize, please, is this the Ketonet of your son or not? All right. So, and of course, he recognizes it, and he says, Taroth Toaf Yosef. Yosef, it's hard to, to give you the Hebrew sense, but Taroth Toaf is a 
torn. It's about being torn, but it's a re, it's a repetition in Hebrew of that word, meaning they, they render it in English like, surely he has been torn. You know, it's like, tore up is he been torn, right? He's completely tore up. Is the sense of the Hebrew? There's a, a, a the repetition is emphasis that Yosef has been torn, and Zornberg says Yaakov's right. Yaakov's right. When they tore that coat off him and threw him in that pit, he has been torn. The Yosef that existed till now has been torn apart, is no longer, and he and he grieves for his son, and no one could comfort him. Okay. So that, that, we're going to stop the, the Torah text there. Um, so wh- the, what we didn't study, which comes right after this, is the Tamar and Judah story that's inserted in the Yosef novella. And so Tamar seduces her father-in-law. It's a long story. She dresses as a prostitute. She seduces her father-in-law in order to conceive a son. Um, because Judah won't give her one of his sons as a, it's a whole thing. Um, and she, she does right to seduce him because he's withholding his son from her. And, and he, when she finds out she's pregnant, he brings her out to be killed because she is promised to his son that he's withholding from her. The point being, he, he brings her out to kill her, to have her burned for breaking her betrothal, uh, chastity, right? And becoming pregnant. She's pregnant by him, by him. right? Okay. Yeah. So whatever, but. But the, the point being, she took from him his staff and his signet because he didn't have money on him. He didn't have any cash. So, but he wants to be with her as a prostitute. And so she says, just leave me your driver's license and your passport. Right? Cause then I know I'll get paid. So these are the things in the ancient world, your staff and your signet were your credit card and your passport. So, so then when he brings her out to be burned, she brings out the staff and the signet and says, Hakerna, recognize, please, to whom I am pregnant by the person to whom these belong. The exact thing that just they just did with Yaakov, tricking him with the coat, saying, recognize, please, is this not your son's coat? This is what Tamar does to Judah. I am pregnant by the person, Hakerna, recognize, please, right, these. I am pregnant by the person to whom these belong. So it's a beautiful piece of Torah that um, that just got set up in our Parsha. Recognize, to whom does this belong? So they trick Yaakov, and then Judah is tricked by Tamar, who is righteous in tricking him, uh, and she uh, becomes pregnant, and there we go. Okay. All right, I'm going to read you from Zornberg that's not on your sheet, so don't look for it on your sheet. Aviva Zornberg talking about the taking of the coat. It's not on your sheet. They remove that which is additional. So Rashi says that that it's hosafa, that, that which is additional over and above the brothers, right, is, is this kutonet. It represents everything that is in excess of what Jacob gives the other brothers. That is the root of his name, you'll say, right? So Hosafa, that which is extra, um, is at the root of Joseph's name. They tear from him that superlative individual quality that they most envy. The concept of stripping occurs here for the first time in the biblical text, it is at root a violent idea with connotations of flaying skins of animals. In biblical language, it is characteristically used of the preparation of an animal as a burnt offering. That's what they're doing to him, she's suggesting, right? This stripping of his coat is what you do to an animal before you put it on the altar. You skin it. It's flayed. Right. And then dissected and burned. Essentially, the desire of the brothers is the absolute destruction of Yosef, of that excessive quality in Joseph that is both grace and irritant. The ritual of the burnt offering reenacts, sublimates a basic savage human instinct to strip, to dismember, to tear apart living structures which she calls necrophilious instincts. Their necrophilious instinct is aroused by 
exactly that which makes Yosef special, right? So we know some of these people, right? That they just have something that draws everybody and it makes you just want to knock them down. (laughs) Some people have it and, and you're enthralled as well. Other people seem to have something that attracts everybody and you're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, why is everybody fawn all over this person? Right. And, and it's just irritating. Right. And for the brothers, it is irritating to the point of necrophiliousness. Okay. So that's what we're. So the beginning of our people. This is the beginning of our people. <laughs> um, so like, this is what I always do with the bar and bat mitzvah kids. I'm like, so what, what, if you were writing the tales of how we began and you're writing the stories of the ancestors, is this the story you'd write? Like what, what is up with that? What is up exactly to your point? Right. Elena, what is that? That these are our foundational myths. What I tend to think is because these foundational stories are about what actually happens between human beings. As long as we're human beings, we have that. We don't like to talk about it, but there are people we just want to tear apart. Right. And often it's siblings. There is a special kind of irritation. My sister used to go into my room and take something and then lock herself in the bathroom and flush the toilet. Like, so I didn't know what she had taken and she knew that I didn't know what she had taken from my, and I swear I was committed when that door opened to tearing that child <laughs> limb from limb. There's a special kind of hate that comes from having to live with somebody. I, it just is how we're put together. And so I think these stories are about what it means for people to try to live together. Right? Mark, am I wrong? I think you're right, but this also is, uh, Zornberg is playing it, and so she's talking about envy, and the, uh, and, and when she's talking about envy, she's talking about very, very early developmental times, and the, what's implied is the, the sequence that are ultimately moving from a paranoid schizoid position to a depressive position. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Exactly what I was thinking. Thank you for articulating it. It's pretty interesting and it's and continues to this gig day when you look at like all of the blended families. The peoples that live in the Middle East are related biblically in so many ways, half siblings, but nonetheless, and still there's. And there's a special kind of hate, right? right Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so for me, it's like Torah's talking about the world as it is and is trying to move us. The, the entirety of Torah is talking about the world as it is and is trying to move us towards what the world should be. So this is not what it's supposed to be, but it is, right? But Torah's not going to sugarcoat it. This is, this is who we are and, and who nations are that have to live together. And hate each other with a special kind of hate because they have to live together, right? And so it's the world as it is. And then we, we, our job is to use Torah to help move us towards the world as it should be. Okay. So some of these are cautionary tales, right? Okay. Well, not, not to get too far ahead in the story, but to get too far ahead in the story. When, when the brothers and Joseph ultimately confront each other and he forgives them, is that? Essentially, what we're supposed to do. So, not to get too far ahead, but we're going to go ahead. So, remember that he doesn't just forgive them; he sets them up in a pretty twisted way. Yeah, he sets them up, and he throws Benjamin in prison. I mean, it's it's sick what he does, and then bring your brother Benjamin down here, right? He sets them up in a in a tortured way to see what they'll do. 
And it's only after they prove themselves to him that he then comes out to them and, and shows them who he is. Right. And yeah. He, okay. Yeah, so the senator says it makes sense, you know. <laughs> um, right. So, right. So we could say, well, because yeah, what is he just gonna like hug them and say, oh, it's okay? Like that wouldn't be a very realistic story. Number one, but number two, they have to earn it. And they do for for what they yeah. did to him. They they have to earn it, and they do. Mentally, oh, forward a little bit. So <laughs> ours is not the text that says turn the other cheek. No, no. that is not a Jewish text. <laughs> the Jewish text is, let's see. Let's let's see. <laughs> right? And if they earn it, then we'll talk about some forgiveness and reconciliation and whatever. That's um, kind of what we're seeing in the political world today, too. The idea of forgiveness and not forgiveness. Well, it has to be earned, right? It has, okay. The reaction. Yeah. Well, so I'm not. No, and yeah. even in terms of Joseph, did he overreact? That's a question. Did, well, I, there are some things that it's like, I think you have to leave it up to the victim to decide what the appropriate, what is it going to take for the victim to be able to, in, in Zornsberg terms, incorporate what's happened and move past it? Um, it's up to, to the victim to determine that, right? Joseph determines what he needs in order to be able to then trust them, right? And, and be with them as their brother. That's why somebody who has been murdered uh, only that person really has the power to forgive the murderer. The other people can't forgive a murderer, someone who's gone. In other words, the victim has to be the one. Well, if the victim murdered, the victim can't right. forgive. Never. But they, that will, there will never be an effective apology from the outside. Acceptance. Acceptance, right. So there's this interesting connection in the Talmud. Um, on verse 3724 that we looked at, the, the pit was rake. It was empty. There was no water in it, right? So we said we can't have redundancy. So what does that mean? For the rabbis, it means there, the pit was empty. There was no water in it, but, but there was something else in it. Okay. So according to Rashi, what's in it are snakes and scorpions is what's in the pit. There's no water in it. So Torah is telling us there's no water, but there is something. And what's in it is snakes and scorpions. So then we get this interesting little tidbit in the Talmud in Shabbat 22a. Nershal Chanukah, Shehini Chalim Alam Esrim Amatsula. So we get this crazy thing about a Hanukkah lamp, a menorah for Hanukkah, that is placed above 20 cubits is pasul, is uh, not kosher. You can't use it. It it doesn't count if it's if it. So in other words, we're supposed to publicize the miracle. Remember, we're supposed to put the menorah in the window. But if you're in the penthouse apartment, it doesn't count. Because it's higher than 20 cubits, just as an alleyway whose beam, it's symbolic for a partition uh, in order to place an Eruv, is more than 20 cubits high, are invalid. None of that is in the Hebrew. Only the bold, the, bo- the bold English you see, that's all that's in the Talmud. The rest is, is our, our translator trying to help you understand what the heck is going on here. The same reason, it's the same reasoning in all three cases. People do not usually raise their heads to see an object at a height above 20 cubits. So there's a requirement to see all of these things. They're deemed invalid when placed above that height. So the Talmud, the Talmud says an Eruv, a menorah, anything that's higher than 20 cubits, you can't, it's not kosher because nobody looks that high and you have to be able to see it for it, for it to count, for it to be legal. Okay. How high is 20 cubits? I have no idea. About 18 inches. 18 inches? So 18 times 20. Somebody else. 30, 30 feet. I, I, I'm not a mathematician. Um, so it's, what did you say, just say? 30 feet. 30 feet. Okay. So 30 feet. Right. All right. So now the, 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 the 
the Talmud is now bringing in our verse. What is the meaning of the verse that is written with regard to Yosef? And they took him and cast him in the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. By inference from that which is stated, and the pit was empty, don't I know that there was no water in it? Rather, why does the verse say there was no water in it? The verse comes to emphasize and teach that there was no water in it, but there were snakes and scorpions in it. What does that have to do then, everybody asks, with the 20 cubit business? Why, why does the Talmud, why does Rav Tanchum bring this verse when talking about the menorah? Oh, we gotta unpack that. Right? So, says Rabbi Joshua Heller, one might leave the coincidence of Rabbi Tanchum's two teachings, the height of the Hanukkah candles and the depth of Joseph's peril as an editorial artifact. However, each of the statements is found separately in several other places in rabbinic literature, meaning the snake, the scorpions and stuff. That's found other places. So is this business about height. So why, why are these juxtaposed? It makes a powerful statement, argues Rabbi Joshua Heller, about the need to keep a sense of perspective and to keep miracles in sight. So the same way we're supposed to always be on the lookout for a menorah that's up there. <laughs> We're also, that has something to do with the depth of Joseph's peril in the pit. The religious spirit of Hanukkah is one of ascent and optimism, right? And then it goes into the Hillel Shammai business about do you light eight mm-hmm. and then go down to one? Or do you light one? We, of course, do Rabbi Hillel's version of one to eight. Rabbi Tanchum's statement, this scorpion business, reminds us that we must keep the reminders of goodness ever in sight and in our minds. The brothers were so high, he's going to argue, that they didn't see the scorpions and the snakes. Had they seen the scorpions and snakes and that Joseph was fine, they would have understood that God was with Yosef and they would have taken him out of there and they would have like worship, you know, but They were too high. They didn't see all the way to the bottom of the pit. We have. Huh? They went to have sandwiches. Right? They weren't paying attention. They weren't looking. They didn't pay attention. And therefore, they missed something really, right, really, really important. All right. So each downward step of the story from the brothers' Jealousy to Joseph's descent into Egypt and Israel's enslavement in Egypt is part of a divine plan leading to their descendants' redemption at the sea and revelation at Sinai. So they missed what we know is the story that he's going to go down to Egypt and become vizier. And then that's going to bring Jacob and all the rest of the people to Egypt where they're going to be enslaved so that they are freed and stand, right, redeemed from slavery at the sea and receive Torah at Sinai, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, we're going to skip this one. Then there's this wonderful story from um, Howard Schwartz um, that says, um, Yaakov also gave Yosef a, what what they're calling here. Do you remember when I told you in the Noah story, I wanted to do Tsoha with you, but I resisted the temptation to do Tsoha. What's Tsoha? It's a Hapax Legomenon. It's the only time we see that word in the whole Torah. The Tsoha was the way that light came into the ark. A Tsoha. So we don't, we don't exactly know the translation because it's the Hapax Legomenon. We only see it once in Torah. So you can't compare other places to know how to translate it. But, but it's an opening in the ark that lets the light in. So this this Midrashic story says that Yaakov gave Yosef not just the kutonet apasim, not just the tunic. He also gave him a tzohar, something that lights up. And he had that with him in the pit. And that's one of the ways he survived. Yeah, really? It's just like, he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Okay. Typical of the rabbis, typical of the Midrash, right? They had some good stuff. They took some good stuff, these rabbis. So so it's that that keeps him going in the pit and and kept him from being afraid. And when they sold him into slavery, he still had it with him. And when he put it in his cup, when he when he put it in his cup, he could he could look into it and he could interpret dreams. So it's that Sohar from his father that he kept with him that kept him from being afraid in the pit and that 
helped him to interpret dreams. And then when he stands before Pharaoh, he can interpret Pharaoh's dreams by, right, looking at the, uh, at the jewel. And it's with him at the time of his death and remained with him until Joseph, until Moses recovers Joseph's coffin. Remember, Joseph says, take my bones out of Egypt with you when you get out of here, when you leave here. So Moshe does that. Moshe gets Joseph's bones because remember they had secondary burial. The flesh rots off and you bury the bones in an ossuary. So Joseph wants his bones to be taken with them. And so that's what they did. They took it. And of course, the, the jewel was in there and they hung it in the Mishkan. And that becomes the, the Tsar of Yosef that, that got him through all of those terrible darknesses, beginning with the pit. That Tsohar is now the, exactly. the eternal life. The Nertamin. So they hung it in the, in the tabernacle and now but it is an, let's see our argument of him disassociating what counter that. Stormberg says she, like that he totally dissociated from himself. That, but how does so, her argument wouldn't make a lot of sense. So, right. So Midrash does not need to harmonize anything. The Midrash often has on the very same page, God went to all the peoples of the earth. Will you take my Torah? Will you take my Torah? And only the people of Israel answered yes. On that same page, it says, God put the mountain over their heads and said, will you accept my Torah? On the very same page. Okay. So, um, all right. So Rabbi Rachel Rose, uh, Berenblatt, the Velveteen rabbi, uh, says that, uh, that we all are at the bottom of the pit at some point, right? Um, and that that we can't ever get ourselves out of the pit, right? Yosef doesn't climb out of the pit. Yosef is taken out of the pit. That we can't. The the very the the word Beit Hasohar. Remember, he's get, he gets thrown in prison next week. Um, the Beit Hasohar. The Gemara calls it Beit Haasurim. The house of impossibilities. The house of can't. We're all in our own sometimes pit or beta asurim. We're all in our own place of can't. And what she's arguing is the Gemara calls it that because, because you can't get yourself out of the house of can't. It's in the name. By definition, you can't get yourself out of the can't place. Somebody else has to. And um, as for Joseph, so for us, even if we can't feel God's presence, and as always, I mean, whatever the G word evokes for us, justice, love, integrity, hope, our job is to help each other trust that in Torah's language, God is with us even here. Those things are with us even here. That holiness and justice and hope are with us, even if we can't feel them. That our cup won't always feel empty. So if we're at the bottom of the well, um, if you're not there, she says, reach out to someone who is. Because really, only each other can pull us out of the house of can't. Um, and we can be liberators in that sense for each other and that we have to be liberators for each other um, as we enter these darkest days. And of course, you know that I teach her in the context of everything that's happening. So um, we are entering the dark of this lunar month. And we are in a really dark time with what's happening for our people in Israel and what's happening in that region. Um, and so we you know, we need to lean hard into the Torah teaching that, that we have to trust that we have to have the the sense that there's hope. And and we are going to have to bring that to each other on the days where we can't when we're in the house of can't. And we're, it's OK to be there. It's just it is. This is the perfect partial. To give hope today. Right. And we need it, Sarah, don't we? We need it very much. The ultimate tikkun So, um, so let's close with the words of the Velveteen rabbi, Rabbi Rachel Baron Black. Uh, she wrote it for Hanukkah this year. It's all right to feel distracted. There's a war going on. Well, two. Also an insurgency somewhere plus the uneasy sense that there must be more conflict in places you can't name. It's okay that one of these hurts more than the others do. No one can feel equally every worldly grief. Maybe you know someone who was fighting or someone who was killed. 
you're a degree or two of separation from the horrors of the front lines, or there are no front lines, horrors are everywhere. You're allowed to feel whatever you feel, including, of course, sad, despairing, furious, alone, panic-stricken, unable to breathe, unable to sleep, or maybe to wake up, knowing how many will never wake again. Groceries still need to be bought, laundry washed, assignments completed. You may stop stock still at the sink, washing produce, seized suddenly by awareness of everyone without water or food to wash it in or wash in it. Remember, grief is sticky, like tape attaching to itself and refusing to pull free. So every sorrow reopens every other. I want to say, kindle one candle and breathe with its light. Inside you, the tempests will settle, but this may not be true. I can't promise when the grief will end. Bring light anyway. Our souls are God's candles, even when we're not sure we still know how to shine. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.